All right, so let's get started. Um, we've got quite a bit to get through today. This is a, you know, to my view, a really interesting set of materials that we get to look at. But we are staying very abstract. Uh, we're talking about the rule of law in a conceptual way. I'm going to try to anticipate how we're going to get more specific, more concrete with this throughout today's lecture. But hopefully we're really going to see how it lands in, uh, in the jurisprudence when we get to the cases for Friday. So uh, I said this at the beginning of the course, but there is a balance in admin law between the very abstract and the very specific and technical. And we're in the abstract very much today. Uh, but I think I've been saying for the last two classes, you know, how important a concept, the idea of the rule of law is. And I really do think it deserves careful attention. Um, so we've spoken about the rule of law broadly. One way it's been, it's been defined uh, in a very pithy and you know, very dated and sexist way is the rule of law is where laws and not men rule. And the, the idea they're getting at there is individuals with their particular biases, their particular points of view, their fallibilities ought not to be the ultimate uh, source of power, but rather power should come from objective, clear, universal laws. It's a kind of fundamental idea behind the rule of law. But we're going to see that it gets very tricky in unpacking this idea. Um, as I've said before, another concept or another feature of the rule of law is that different lawyers inevitably read the rule of law as supporting their arguments. I've said that a few times. Justice Major said it well in Imperial Tobacco. Uh, Justice Major said, advocates tend to read into the principle of the rule of law anything which supports their particular view of what the law should be. And I certainly think that's empirically true, but that doesn't mean the rule of law is a, a sort of concept devoid of, of real meaning and force. Uh, we do need to unpack what it, what it really means and what it maybe doesn't mean. Uh, the rule of law is entrenched in the Canadian constitutional structure, both implicitly and explicitly in the Constitution. So the Constitution Act 1867 sets out the idea that um, the provinces of Canada will be established, and this is from the preamble, with a constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom. This has been read by the courts as importing a wide array of constitutional ideas from the United Kingdom and the importance of respect for and furthering the project of the rule of law is right at the top of those concepts that have been deemed to be imported you know, through this idea of a constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom. Now, there, there is an irony here. This is a bit of an aside. There's an irony in the notion of writing down in a constitution that your constitution will be similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom because the key feature of the United Kingdom constitution is that it's unwritten. And that's mentioned in the 
book briefly in a discussion of Dicey, but in any event, that's more of just an anomaly than anything we really need to pay attention to, but I do like to point it out as a bit of a, a surprising uh, result. So we have the implicit adoption of the rule of law as a governing uh, idea, a governing concept through the preamble to the Constitution Act 1867, and then it becomes explicit in the Constitution Act 1982. In Canada, uh, the, the Constitution Act 1982 says, whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. So it's become explicitly a framing of the Constitution, therefore something that explicitly needs to permeate throughout all uh, approaches to understanding and applying law in Canada. You know, the notion of a, a rule of law and not men and the idea of something objective being in charge, something objective and ephemeral that is not just the whims of individuals, you can find its roots, I'm sure, farther back, but you can find it in the writings of Aristotle. Certainly, it's one of the main ideas that animated the Magna Carta. And the, the basic idea, of course, is that the law must be supreme over these unconstrained exercises of power. And we're going to come back to that idea in the concept of arbitrariness. So at the outset, I'm just situating how the rule of law is... is um, referred to and adopted through the Constitution, hearkening back that it's a very uh, long-standing idea. But now I want to get into a little bit of, well, what really does it mean in Canadian law? How has it been interpreted by the courts? And a good starting place is the Supreme Court of Canada's articulation of the rule of law in the Imperial Tobacco case. So this is from 2005. And fundamentally, what we had here was a case where there was concern about retroactive legislation. So this was legislation where BC, the BC government, was saying, we want to recover you know, health costs that were incurred as a result of tobacco uh, use. And we say that there was abuses by the tobacco companies. But what's really crucial is the legislation in essence made their actions um, tortious and compensable despite the fact that they you know, may not have been illegal at the time to engage in this kind of advertising and misleading practices. Now that's, that's arguable, but that's one of the theories that was put forward by the many lawyers who represented the tobacco companies and, and fought this, this um, case tooth and nail. And it's still ongoing. This case is still ongoing in 2024. And the, um, the argument was, in essence, that you can't retroactively make something illegal. That's contrary to the rule of law. That's contrary to the idea the law must be knowable and must be something that is capable of being followed. And in essence, the the argument was that we can't have known the law. And so to now allow Parliament to make this activity compensable to the government undermines the rule of law. And I won't get deep into the case and, you know, the, the arguments and why the court ultimately allowed the legislation to stand but the court did have a good explanation of the rule of law and the principles that it entails. 
and it identified three principles. And this is at paragraph 58 of the Imperial Tobacco case. I have the excerpt in the notes I'll put up. Uh, it's referenced in the book. And the court has to say that they have described the rule of law as embracing of three principles. The first recognizes that the law is supreme over officials of the government as well as private individuals and thereby preclusive of the influence of arbitrary power. And this is that idea that we've said several times in the class so far, that simply because you're a state actor doesn't mean you have the authority to do anything or any uh, you know, broad dictatorial ability to accomplish your will. Rather, the law is going to bind those individuals as much as it binds anybody else. Nobody's above the law. So that's the first principle. The second principle, the court says, requires the creation and maintenance of an actual order of positive laws, which preserves and embodies the more general principle of normative order. Now that's a mouthful, but what they're getting at there is the rule of law presupposes that there is and will be laws. I'm going to come back to that in a second when I talk a bit about the Manitoba language rights case, which is a fascinating case, but gets at a, a pretty important uh, recognition of the fact that we need law to have rule of law. Um, and the third point is, I think, building off of the first but it requires that the relationship between the state and the individual be regulated by law. And again, this is getting at the idea that if the state is going to affect the rights or privileges or interests of an individual, it needs to root that interference, root that power in the law, not in some arbitrary because I said so and I am the government. So to kind of recap, you have the idea that Officials of the government are just as subject to the law as anybody else. There will be a set of laws, and the law will govern the interactions between the state and individuals. These are the three concepts that, as of 2005, the court recognized as comprising the principle of the rule of law as it lands in Canadian law. So, three principles until... 2014, when the Supreme Court of Canada recognized a fourth principle, which decided that the rule of law is linked to, presupposes, and requires judicial independence and access to the courts. And the idea being, if the courts are taken away from the people so that they're no longer accessible, or so that the courts are no longer uh, staffed by independent judges, this undermines the rule of law. So this is a fairly significant development. Uh, certainly adding a fourth component to the rule of law is very important, but also finding a constitutional basis. And again, remember the rule of law is implicitly and explicitly part of the constitution, but finding a constitutional basis for access to justice was done through recourse to the rule of law. Okay, I'm just going to pause. Are there any questions at this point? Okay. Um, 
I don't think I see any hands. Sorry, there's quite a few uh, people in the in the Zoom. Perfect. All right. So let's move a, move on with that basic framing now that we've seen how the Supreme Court of Canada has um, articulated these four concepts. But let's get a little bit deeper into the rule of law. Um, you know, in fact, before doing so, maybe I will, as I said, revisit the Manitoba language case. Um, I suspect you've learned about this case before. It's one of my absolute favorite cases because the outcome is just so unimaginable in a sense. So if you'll recall, what you had in this case was a Supreme Court of Canada ruling from a long time ago that said all the Constitution requires that all statutes in Manitoba be published in both official languages. And this states back to the terms of the Manitoba Act, the legislation that is now recognized in that schedule to the Constitution Act 1982 as forming part of the Constitution. The Manitoba Act brings Manitoba into confederation and the Manitoba Act is written at a time where Manitoba was a very bilingual province and the laws required that all statutes be published in both official languages. Well, if you remember your history, shortly after Manitoba comes into Confederation, there's a real influx of English settlers. French becomes very much a minority language in Manitoba. And shortly thereafter, they just stop publishing uh, case, sorry, stop publishing laws in both official languages. So this gets the Supreme Court of Canada saying, hey, um, every single law in Manitoba is unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court of Canada looks at it and is like, yep, <laughs> you're right. They are literally all unconstitutional. So what do you do in that scenario? This is an interesting case for constitutional remedies because in essence, what they said is, look, we're going to declare the laws unconstitutional, but we're going to give a ample period to the legislature to translate the laws and publish them in both official languages. But driving that concern, driving that outcome, I should say, is a very clear illustration of the notion that the rule of law requires there to be law. And you know, the court basically had before it, are we going to, you know, does the constitution require in essence anarchy in Manitoba until these laws are, are republished in, in both official languages? And the court said, no, the constitution cannot demand that because that would be absolutely contrary to the rule of law. So I raise this because I think it's a, it, this concept that there must be a positive orders of law, um, you know, probably is, isn't that hard to grasp. It does give you a vivid illustration of an instance where this really came up and the constitutional status of the rule of law was relied upon in order to craft an appropriate remedy. They probably would have gotten there anyways, but regardless. But I bring it up because it's going to, resonate a little bit later in the lecture when we start talking about, well, if the rule of law requires a positive order of laws, does that mean that those laws, you know, must have a single objective meaning? 
these questions that we've um, anticipated in previous lectures rise again in this conception of the rule of law. What does it mean to have a positive body of laws and how would that positive body of laws be able to satisfy the rule of law if it is um, as indeterminate as some people suggest it may be with ambiguity and um, you know multiple reasonable interpretations of the same law being given force each of them all right uh, so again i have a nice uh, excerpt from the manitoba language case in the notes um, you know have a look at it but if you get that concept that's the point that i'm trying to draw out here um, in the book I think this is quite a well done chapter. This is by um, UBC's own Mary Liston, a, a wonderful professor. And um, Professor Liston, um, I think gives a, gives a very thorough explanation of the rule of law and these concepts. And uh, I think some of it probably feels a bit dense at this point. Uh, there's just a lot packed in these 30 pages but ultimately the ideas are going to be drawn out and expanded upon so while i'm very glad that we've read this i'm not going to go through this chapter sort of page by page quite a bit of the cases that she talks about we are going to read and discuss on friday and a lot of the ideas are introduced here and are going to be expanded upon and uh, we're going to spend quite a bit of time with throughout the course so this really is a, an introduction to it I did want to, you know, draw your attention to page 75 and the diagram that uh, Professor Liston has provided. And I would just quibble a tiny bit with this diagram. And I want to explain why. Um, I like this diagram, but I don't like the framing where you see in this diagram the executive branch. Uh, and then beneath it, a box for administrative actors. I prefer the conception that everybody in the executive branch is in one way or another exercising powers that are given to them through legislation or the crown prerogative and are in some sense an administrative actor. And I think that, um, you know, what Professor Liston is going for here is a a diagram which has the three branches of government that we're familiar with set out and, a, and an idea of how the administrative actors fit within that. Um, but I wouldn't think that just limiting the idea of administrative actors interaction with the executive to budget personnel policies and regulations is, um, is accurate, but rather I really want you to conceive of the executive as this giant branch of government that wields powers that are given to them through legislation, regulation, or the crown prerogative, and which is always subject to a check to make sure it is not acting outside of its jurisdiction. And hearkening back to the principles that we uh, you know, spoke of in talking about the uh, Imperial Tobacco case and those three principles of the rule of law, especially principles one and three, which are just completely um, cannot countenance unlimited executive power by anyone. So 
in my book, I've actually drawn a bit of a circle between the executive branch and administrative actors to kind of remind myself that this really is part and parcel of the same concept. So I just wanted to, to speak on that briefly. Um, and I, I do think that Professor Liston, I don't think she would quibble with, with that. I think she was trying to illustrate a different point, um, but I just didn't want to confuse the, the diagram that I've been really working off of with this diagram to think that there's some crucial distinction between the executive branch and administrative actors. I really see them as, as the same thing. Um, and I think Professor Liston at paragraph, uh, page 78, um, you know, does speak of the the prodigious powers of the executive branch and the ability to access administrative law as crucial for the realization of the rule of law. So I think she does tie broadly administrative law into oversight of the executive as a whole, which is the conception I think makes the most sense. Okay, um, I'll pause there. Any questions? Okay. Um, the next thing I want to talk about, I, I have again gotten at this, um, but why is it hard to, why is there even an issue around this question of whether there's a objective inter uh, right interpretation of the law or whether there ought to be a system that recognizes multiple reasonable interpretations of the same law? And I want to just land this point briefly by revisiting a case I, I think I briefly mentioned that I'm sure you've all talked about. Um, you're probably all familiar with the um, Nadon Supreme Court of Canada case. I, I'm sure if I were in class, I'd see a lot of heads nodding. Uh, I doubt that many of you were following law, um, you know, extremely diligently now, what is about 10 years ago. Maybe some of you were, but... Um, for people who were practicing law at the time, I can say this case was an absolute shock when it came out. So this is the case where Stephen Harper had appointed Mark Nadon, a federal court of appeal judge, to the Supreme Court of Canada. He had, I believe, taken the oath of office, had an office, you know, at the Supreme Court of Canada, was no doubt lunching with his you know, fellow judges. And then this lawyer, Rocco Galati, who's um, an Ontario lawyer, um, you know, I don't think he would be offended if I said he can be a bit of a rabble rouser. You know, he can push um, somewhat uh, unlikely theories at times. Um, and he pushed the idea that this appointment of Justice Nadon was illegal or unconstitutional because Justice Nadon was appointed to fill a seat that was reserved for Quebec. And while Justice Nadon was from Quebec, had been a lawyer in Quebec, he did not satisfy the specific requirements in the Supreme Court of Canada Act, and so therefore could not be appointed a judge of the Supreme Court of Canada. And this case was brought in, I forget, maybe federal court. And in essence, the, the government, the, uh, the Harper government said, all right, forget it. This is so dumb. We're obviously going to win this thing. But 
we just want this settled. We want Justice Nadan hearing cases. We are going to put a reference question to the Supreme Court of Canada, simply asking the question as to whether a judge in Justice Nadan's circumstances can be appointed to the Supreme Court of Canada or not. And if you were taking bets on whether the Supreme Court was going to allow Justice Nadan to sit on the court, I mean, I can't even imagine the odds you would have to get for the for the no side to, to be reasonable. It just is a, um, it seemed a foregone conclusion that these judges who were sitting down the hall from him weren't going to say, no, you know, you're not allowed to be a judge on the court. But, you know, shockingly enough, that's exactly, exactly what happened. And it turned on the interpretation of two words in the Supreme Court of Canada Act. So I'm just going to, um, oops, uh, I'm just going to share my screen. Sorry, a little bit out of practice with Zoom, which is probably a blessing nicely. So what I have up here is the Supreme Court of Canada Act. And what the um, Harper government did was they brought the reference and they amended the Supreme Court of Canada Act to add section 5.1 and 6.1 with the goal of clarifying that indeed Justice Nadon and people in his circumstances could be judges of the Supreme Court. I'm not going to get into the um, the reason why, but it's important to note that sections 5.1 and 6.1 were found to be unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of Canada on the basis that the constitution of the Supreme Court is constitutionalized by the Constitution Act 1982. And so therefore, the only way to change the composition of the Supreme Court and the rules of the composition of the Supreme Court would be through constitutional amendment. So this is one of those unsatisfying statutes that there's many of where there's provisions that have been found unconstitutional that still sit in the statute books. Now, query whether that's very conducive to the rule of law, specifically with respect to the importance that the average person ought to be able to know the law and to have unconstitutional laws just sitting there because no one's you know, taking the time to uh, clean up the statute book is, um, is, is probably a disappointing outcome for rule of law concerns. Leaving that aside, let's get back to Nadan. So the provisions that were given force by the Supreme Court were found to, uh, to validly set out the, uh, the constraints on who can be a judge are Section 5 and Section 6. So you'll read Section 5, and this is the requirement that you be either a judge or a lawyer with 10 years experience to be appointed a, a judge. Any person may be appointed a judge who is or has been, okay, see it right there, a judge of a superior court of a province or a barrister or advocate of at least 10 years standing at the bar of a province. Now, Justice Nadan does not um, qualify under this. He was not a judge of a superior court of a province. He was a judge in the federal court system. But he certainly was a barrister or advocate of at least 10 years standing at the bar of a province. And indeed, he was a barrister or advocate of 10 years standing of the bar of Quebec. So, no problem on Section 5. 
But section six reads, at least three of the judges shall be appointed from among the judges of the Court of Appeal or of the Superior Court of the Province of Quebec or from among the advocates of that province. So he's not a judge of the Court of Appeal or Superior Court of Quebec. He's not currently an advocate of the province. But is the fact that he was a, a advocate for over 10 years sufficient to, to, to um, satisfy this? This turns on how you interpret those two words, from among. And do you interpret those words as having a temporal requirement, right? Does that mean you have to be from among the lawyers or advocates of the province right now? Or is it enough that you are one of the people who used to be a lawyer or advocate of the province? Does the phrase from among import a temporal component? Now, usually with statutory interpretation, we start with plain language meaning, right? How, how would you just ordinarily interpret this? And it's, it's a tricky question with serious um, with serious ambiguity I would say um, if I say you know give me a um, an egg from among the eggs in the fridge and you find an egg that was in my fridge but's been on my counter for six months and is pretty rotten and you give it to me, I would say, well, no, I wanted one from among the eggs in the fridge, not the ones that used to be there. If someone says to me, can you find a student from among your admin law class who would be a promising articling student? I wouldn't say, well, my admin law class ended, so no. I'd say, oh, well, yeah, of course. So we can intuitively use that word in ways that have a temporal meaning, or that phrase, in ways that have a temporal meaning and ways that don't have a temporal meaning. So the Supreme Court of Canada has a, um, a disagreement over whether this phrase imports a temporal requirement or not. I'll stop the sharing. The majority, and the majority is six judges, because of course they couldn't sit nine because one of the judges who had been appointed at the time was Justice Nadon. Slight conflict. The, um, the majority says indeed from among does have a temporal component to it and they point to that maybe i shouldn't have stopped sharing i'll come back for one second they come back to the language of section five any person may be appointed a judge who is or has been a judge or a, of a superior court so they say listen if they want to include people who were but who are not currently, uh, they show you in Section 5 how they would do that, how Parliament would do that. They don't have this is or has been language in Section 6. And for that reason, among other reasons, they uh, decide to find that there is a temporal component to this and somebody who used to be a judge or advocate of the province of Quebec is not entitled. The dissent... Justice Moldaver says, you know, give me a break in essence. These words convey no temporal meaning. 
you have to take their surrounding their their meaning from the context and he says listen if he flips it on its head in essence if you wanted to be uh put a temporal meaning in section six you could have said from among the current judges or the current advocates so both of them say in essence parliament um could have spoken more clearly if it preferred the other outcome both of them resort to the same principles of statutory interpretation it's not as if half the judges of the supreme court of canada are are no good at this or justice moldaver is no good at statutory interpretation it's because reasonable people can disagree on the interpretation of a statute even a statute is you know relatively simple as section six which is just a you know a couple dozen words so the the point here i want you to take away is that when we think about the rule of law questions of certainty uh the questions of whether the law needs to have an objective meaning we need to grapple with the fact that reasonable people can and do disagree on interpretation of statutes any questions on this all right um so the book um goes through a hypothetical scenario um about in essence uh you know a, a prejudiced um administrative official these are the facts of the Ron Corelli case, just modernized, and we are going to be revisiting those next class there. It's probably my favorite case we go through. I will certainly say um, the name Ron Corelli or that, that case I'll refer to more than probably any case we talk about apart from Vavilov. So that's a very important case we're going to come back to next class. So I'm not going to go over that now. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the um, some of the theoretical uh key concepts that have been described in uh relating to the rule of law um then i'm going to talk a little bit about those how those theoretical concepts resonate in the vabilov case which i'll introduce for the first and certainly not the last time for this class uh, and then i'm going to go into a bit of a current event there is a absolutely crucially important administrative law case that's being argued in the United States Supreme Court you know right now today and I'm going to talk a little bit about how these concepts resonate in that case so um, the book posits the rule of law as a guiding principle with four essential guarantees and these I think resonate well with the Supreme Court of Canada has said uh, all persons will be considered formally equal under the rule of law, including those holding public power. Um, formally equal, of course, is a concept that needs to be contrasted with substantive equality. And uh, formal equality is the idea that the law will apply the same to every person, not the idea that the law will achieve substantively fair outcomes for every person. So formal equality can lead to substantive inequality that's really a charter question we'll come back to that much later in the course but as a bare minimum leaving aside questions of how to further substantive equality the law requires formal equality um, for the rule of law to, to work um, the second principle the book recognizes is that public standards will guide the creation enactment revision and enforcement of all laws 
The third principle is that the government and the legal system will treat individuals fairly. And the fourth principle is that an existing legal system enables access to legal processes for all persons in order to resolve complaints. So another articulation of these principles, which seems to uh, resonate, I think, well with how the Supreme Court of Canada has described it. Um, now I'm going to take a bit of a tour back in time to speak of one of the most influential thinkers on the rule of law and on conceptions of the law generally. And this is the, uh, the British theorist uh, Dicey. So the, the Dicean, we, we've spoken about this a bit already, but the Dicean conception of the rule of law is this idea of, um, in essence, legal formalism and the idea that the law um, you know, is objective, knowable, and that ultimately it is the judge's role to interpret and apply the laws. Uh, so that's a simplified version of a very complex thinker, and you certainly can go much, much deeper into Dicey. Uh, many people do. But the Dicey, Dicey's conception of the rule of law has been described as having three essential features. So the first, the absence of arbitrary and discretionary authority in government, but especially in the executive branch and the administrative state. Now, arbitrary authority we are, I think, all very, um, most people can be on, on the same page that that is uh, something to be avoided. Discretionary authority is a much more controversial component of the Dicean conception of the rule of law. The second point is that formal legal equality so that every person, including and especially public officials, are equally subject to the law of the land. That's the first statement from the Supreme Court of Canada also. And third, the existence of constitutional law is a binding part of the ordinary law of the land. This is more controversial in England because the constitution is, of course, unwritten. And so the judges and the society more broadly sort of has a ongoing task in reaffirming commitment to the constitution. Um, the Dicey framework, for our purposes, one of the main things we need to really take away is it elevates the role of judges within the framework. And it is skeptical of the consistency between wide executive discretionary power and the maintenance of the rule of law. So that skepticism, I'm going to come back to in a second, um, it, that's animating this U.S. Supreme Court case. But it also is certainly present in the Supreme Court of Canada's Babilov case that we're going to talk about a lot. Um, I'm going to introduce it here. You've probably, I don't think you can get this far in law school without probably having heard um, the name Babilov. It's just become such a uh, widely cited and widely discussed and important case. Um, and we are going to spend a, a good chunk of the course on this case. And it's one of you know, two cases that are absolutely the, the top ones you need to know for the exam, Babilov and Baker. I'm only introducing it here, um, and we'll be coming back to it you know, many times throughout. Uh, one of the best things about Babilov is it has incredible facts. So Babilov, Mr. Babilov, is a guy 
he was born in Canada and his parents happened to be secret Russian spies. And the TV show, The Americans, which you may have seen, uh, was actually inspired apparently by this guy's story and, and the, the notion of sort of how do you live a, a life uh, balancing your, your, your sort of fundamental Canadianness um, for the show Americanness with um, you know the, this espionage of, of your parents. So Mr. Vavilov has no idea his parents are secret Russian spies for his whole childhood. Eventually, you know, it does come to light. He goes to get his passport renewed. He's born in Canada. He's only ever lived in Canada. He's a Canadian guy. He goes to get his passport renewed. And they say, you know, Mr. Vavilov um, says here, your parents are secret Russian spies. Uh, so we can't renew your passport. Why? Well, in essence, there's a provision in the uh, rules around when you get citizenship based on being born in a country where it doesn't extend to children of people who were agents of a foreign government at the time. You know, thinking like diplomats, kids who are born in, in another country don't necessarily get that country's citizenship because they're going to have the citizenship of the country that they're, that they're you know, representatives of. So this case ends up being a fascinating uh, substantive interpretation of uh, statutory interpretation and, and, you know, does that provision really mean to exclude someone like Vavilov, whose parents were, again, secret Russian spies? But the, um, the case ends up taking on a life far beyond this person's very important uh, personal circumstance. And the Supreme Court of Canada decides, you know, Mr. Vavilov, well, of course, it's important for us that we situate and decide your your citizenship so you can know whether you're, you know, going to get to live in Canada or going to have to move back to Russia or or perhaps be a, uh, get a visa or your life's going to be completely upside down. But, you know, just hold on for a little bit. We'll leave that kind of in limbo because we want to use your case as an opportunity to completely rethink administrative law and the concept of deference to tribunals and when we're going to be doing it. So they announced this ahead of time. They set out a press release in essence saying, um, hey, we are going to be rethinking standard of review analysis. Um, you know, in essence, it's like a bat signal to, to law nerds, you know, go find yourself a client, write an intervener factum and come on down. And they have this, you know, three day nerd fest of admin law where they debate every single angle of this question of, of deference and how to approach administrative law. And we are going to watch a lot of that hearing um, later on in the course, and we're going to certainly speak about the outcome of that in much greater depth. But what I wanted to get at today is within that um, that discussion, that the, the the reasons for the court, there's a very loaded, in essence, um, you know, attack by the dissent on the majority reasons accusing them of being Dicean, you know, of, of hearkening back to a Dicean conception of the rule of law. And this is the dissenting reasons from Justices Abella and Karakitsanis. And just as an aside, Justice Abella is, 
I think widely seen as one of the foremost, not just in Canada, but probably worldwide, um, forceful advocates and, um, and articulate defenders of the concept of increasing access to justice through deference to administrative tribunals. We're going to explore that further later. And, you know, there's people who have different thoughts on whether that's actually effective. But um, Justice Abella certainly speaks loudly on this on this topic. And so Justices Abella and Karakatsanis say, this is a paragraph 240 of Vavilov. It's in the notes and you'll be reading the case later. So don't, don't worry too much about typing this word for word. But in the majority's framework, deference gives way whenever the rule of law demands it. And they have the rule of law in scare quotes. The majority's approach to the rule of law, however, flows from a court-centric conception of the rule of law rooted in Dicey's 19th century philosophy. So they say the majority is being Dicean, adapting a court-centric conception and saying this is pretty dated. This is the 19th century philosophy. They posit a different approach. So Dicey says, distrust administrative tribunals, the courts are the guardians of the law, the law is objective, the law must be interpreted by these judges who are the ones who have the power and have the proper constitutional role to interpret law. That's Dicey. Justice Abella says, Karakatsanis, the rule of law is not the rule of courts. A pluralist conception of the rule of law recognizes that courts are not the exclusive guardians of law and that others in the justice arena have shared responsibility for its development, including administrative decision makers. So we'll come back to this case. Um, but I wanted to just highlight that uh, briefly so that you get a a, an idea as to how these concepts, these abstract theoretical concepts are still animating judicial disagreement at the highest level on the most important case. So these are not just, you know, purely academic disputes and these are not sort of disputes confined to the dustbin of history. These are very much alive today. Today, 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 I want to get to the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, I'll just pause, though, and ask if there's any questions. All right. I'm so glad that we don't do Zoom usually. I hate this. Like, this is the worst. Um, thank you for bearing with me, but um, it's so hard to, to lecture when you don't have a sense as to um, people's body language and you know, where people might be having a difficulty. So thank you so much for bearing with me on this. And I really hope that we can get together on Friday. Uh, looks like 50-50 chance. We'll see what happens. But we'll, we'll, we'll press on. We're all probably old hand at this. Um, let's talk about what's happening today in less snowy climbs. The United States Supreme Court is hearing a case that in essence asks the court to do away with the idea of deferring to administrative tribunals or at least to significantly limit the circumstances where they will defer to administrative tribunals and i doubt that very many of you have studied you know united states administrative law um, but even if you've listened to you know 
political podcasts or this i've heard this concept before just in the pop culture this concept of chevron deference and chevron deference is named after a case chevron versus the united states resource defense council the united states uh, precedent that is one of the most cited cases in u.s supreme court history so the chevron case sets out when federal courts should defer to the interpretation given to a law by an administrative agency. And the rule is, in essence, unless Congress has been clear, courts will defer to any reasonable interpretation from an administrative decision maker. So I'll pause there, and I'm just going to um, preface the idea. This, this concept of a test of sufficiently clear wording from Congress is controversial. Um, the Canada doesn't have a similar thing of you only defer in the absence of clear, uh, sufficiently clear statutory language, um, at least in the concept, in the context of when you defer to decision makers under the Vavilov framework. That's just, that's not a, a component of whether deference is owed. So that part is controversial. But the broader idea that indeed you do often defer to administrative tribunal decision makers interpretations of the law uh, is consistent between the United States and Canada. So this is being attacked today in a decision that would seek to, or in a case that they're seeking to overturn the Chevron case. And perhaps institute a rule where no longer will judges defer in any circumstances to the interpretation of the law given by an administrative decision maker. Um, in support of this, obviously, you can guess that they are relying the um, both sides, but particularly the people attacking the Chevron deference are relying on the conception of the rule of law that would be seen as Dicean, that's sort of the Dicean conception of the rule of law uh, that would be, you know, the, the sort of target of Justice Abella's ire. So from the appellant's brief in one of the, there's two cases that are being heard simultaneously. The appellant in one of the cases says, um, you know, the, the government's relying on stare decisis to say Chevron's been a law forever, you can't overturn it. But they say the government's stare decisis defense of Chevron is flawed. Stare decisis typically promotes stability, consistency, and the rule of law. But Chevron, by its very nature, undermines these values. It allows agencies to unilaterally redefine the meaning of federal law and forces courts to rubber stamp their decisions. Chevron thus creates instability and inconsistency, replacing the rule of law with rule by agency fiat. So you get a sense as to this framework of administrative tribunals and um, unpredictable, inconsistent applications of the law by them undermines the rule of law on a fundamental, uh, in a fundamental way. That's the, the appellant's position. Um, the appellants in the other case 
have a, a similar brief and they say, you know, the fundamental problem is that different judges have wildly different conceptions of whether a statute is clear or unambiguous, which generates inconsistency in Chevron's application that is antithetical to the neutral impartial rule of law. So here they're saying um, the, the problem is this question of whether a law is sufficiently clear is a question that is just way too um, unpredictable and determined differently by different judges. So they're attacking the very framework of Chevron of here's how you approach these things. Is it sufficiently clear? If not, defer. They're saying that framework itself undermines the rule of law. So rule of law arguments, again, front and center within this very live hearing happening today. Um, I'll read just a little bit from one more brief. I was reading them this morning, kind of interesting. Uh, this is a brief filed by, you know, Senator Ted Cruz. In fact, it's a feature of, you know, U.S. Supreme Court litigation that you'll get politicians jumping in. Uh, this is Ted Cruz on behalf of himself and some other Republican senators. And Senator Cruz says, the judiciary has one primary check on the excess of political branches that check is the enforcement of the rule of law through the exercise of judicial power. But deferring to agency legal interpretations amounts to an abdication of that constitutionally mandated role. At this late hour, the whole project deserves a tombstone no one can miss. The court should unequivocally bury Chevron deference. So again, you're getting this idea there's a fundamental role of the courts. The role of the courts is constitutionally mandated. The role of the courts is undermined when administrative decision makers are the ones making the decisions and interpreting the law and thereby taking from the people the ability to get their constitutionally guaranteed oversight by the courts. So this is you know very strongly illustrating the rule of law concerns that animate a lot of the discussion around deference to administrative tribunals and um, i'm going to certainly uh, give a, 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 a explanation of the sort of the other side of the picture of, of why defer and we're going to talk about that a lot um, but i wanted to just today sort of again, outline how these rule of law concerns continue to resonate. Um, a few more things on this case, and then we'll take our break and, and have a little uh, video session. Sorry, I just pressed the printer. It's making a loud noise. Um, you'll notice, you know, this is politicized. This question of deferring to administrative tribunals is being attacked uh, from the right. That's just sort of objectively true with respect to this um, attack on Chevron in the United States Supreme Court. In addition to, you know, Ted Cruz and the Republican senators, other groups filing briefs to support overturning this idea of deference to administrative tribunals include the America First Policy Institute, the America First Legal Foundation, the Christian Employers Alliance, the Gun Owners of America, the Caddo Institute. 
So you've got these um, right wing or libertarian sort of think tank groups or these very, you know, Trumpian MAGA new groups that have sprung up in the last eight years, all saying crucial that we overturn this concept of deferring to administrative tribunals. Interestingly, though, it wasn't always the case that this was politicized in this manner. In fact, the Chevron case itself was about the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency accepting a Reagan-era interpretation of the Environmental Protection Act that limited the agency's powers. So Chevron was a case where the tribunal took a um, approach that would be more conducive to sort of um, right-leaning interests and was attacked by left-leaning interests and saying that the court should intervene and, and, and change this. But in recent years, I think the decision's been made on the right that um, administrative agencies tend to favor more liberal causes, more regulation, etc. And so uh, disempowering these agencies and empowering people who are upset with any of their rulings to go challenge them without any deference being given to their decisions, the ideas will further in a more conservative causes. Um, but again, this is not a um, not always been the case. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard of Justice Scalia, a famous conservative legal scholar, and he was one who defended the idea of Chevron deference. Um, so he wrote, I've got a couple paragraphs I'll quickly read and then we'll take our break. Uh, and this is a, a article, certainly no need to read it for the class, but I do have the um, the link to it in the notes I'll put up. But Justice Scalia said, it seems to me that an approach, um, such an approach, he talks about limiting the Chevron deference, deference idea, would deprive Chevron of one of its major advantages from the standpoint of governmental theory. So he's talking about the advantages of Chevron from governmental theory per, uh, perspective, which is to permit needed flexibility and appropriate political participation in the administrative process. One of the major disadvantages of having the courts resolve ambiguities is that they resolve them forever and ever. Only statutory amendment can produce a change. He goes on to say, if Congress is to delegate broadly as modern times are thought to demand, it seems to me desirable that the delegee be able to suit its actions to the times so that continuing political accountability be, be assured through direct political pressures upon the executive and through the indirect political pressure of congressional oversight. All this is lost if new or changing agency interpretations are somehow suspect. So he's writing, certainly not a person who would say, you know, it was not a staunch defender of the rule of law, but he's writing saying, listen, if Congress, or in our case, Parliament chooses to delegate powers to administrative decision makers, we should recognize one of the purposes behind that is to give flexibility, to allow them to be nimble, to allow them to change. And if the price to be paid there is a bit of inconsistency and unpredictability, that may be better than the alternative of always having to go get a new statute passed whenever there's some change in the, um, you know, the, the values of the government of the day or the circumstances on the ground that require some tweak to the administrative state. So 
This is a bit of a, a sidetrack into U.S. law and U.S. thought, but I think it is helpful, again, in landing this idea of these rule of law concepts being very much alive today and also introducing some of the tensions that underlie this fundamental question we're going to be returning to over and over again of who should be making these decisions, who should be interpreting the law, how does that resonate within the question of the rule of law. Okay, any questions? Okay. Um, oh, Gabby. Yeah. Yeah. Please uh, go ahead. Uh, that's a great question, and I think a lot of people would say uh, yes, it is. But we'll get into as we get further into the question of how you theoretically um, explain deference which we're not going to get deep into today. Uh, uh, but when we get through Vavilov as a whole, we'll, both sides are, are we'll, we'll say they're not being contrary to the rule of law. Um, we will see some explanations for some theories as to how you can um, combine, you can not combine, um, reconcile legal realism with the rule of law. Um, but the the fundamental tension, I think, is there and, and you have to almost just accept, which is if you're going to tell me that really there isn't one objective meaning to the law and really it's always going to be judges who are going to bring some um, personal biases or personal points of view to their interpretation that's going to lead them to to think in a particular way. I shouldn't have said judges. I should say anybody interpreting a law is going to bring their own point of view to that question. And people are naturally going to be um, inclined towards uh, outcomes that they see as just and are going to justify interpretations of laws that they think are going to further those outcomes. Um, you know, then I think you do have concerns around the question of predictability, stability, and um, knowability of the laws. Uh, the book has an interesting, um, uh, interesting passage where um, the book says, it's got maybe a provocative quote that advanced knowledge of the law is of course empirically not true is what Mary Liston says. And that's the idea that you know, the rule of law, we would love to mean that you can ask yourself a legal question and know the answer. Or you can ask a lawyer a legal question and know the answer. But the, the true reality is, if you go to a lawyer and you say, here's my situation, and if it's anything other than the most simple, mundane legal question, if you say to the lawyer, What's going to happen if I go to court to resolve this dispute? You know, if your lawyer says, well, it's definitely going to be this. This is 100% what's going to happen. Uh, don't hire that lawyer because that's not realistic. Always the, the answer on any difficult legal question is going to be framed a bit more in the realm of probabilities than certainties. It's going to be framed in, well, this, this, and this are the key facts. These two facts weigh one way, but there is this um, this fact here that could weigh another way. 
there's a bit of discretion involved in this decision. And it's going to turn on whether the judge believes this evidence or doesn't believe this evidence. So most likely it's going to be this. It might be this. But you got to be aware of the possibility it could be this thing you really don't like. You know, legal opinions are going to be expressed on any difficult question in probabilities and likelihoods as opposed to certainties. And that is a legal realist um, thought. And that does cause tensions with the rule of law. And I think the where it gets hard is the question of to what degree do we accept that reality in de- designing our system, accept that there's going to be some uncertainty, and to what extent do we instead uh, have a theoretical system that works coherently on the basis that there is one objective understanding of the law. So I, I think legal realism does have tensions with the rule of law. There are arguments as to why um, you know, deference and these sort of ideas do not undercut the rule of law. We'll, we'll get into those as we get further into the course. But that tension is, is very real, I would say. Um, okay, I've been going a bit long, uh, longer than I would usually without a break. And we're going to be taking a pretty long break today. Did everybody see the email I sent this morning about the Lord Bingham, um, the Lord Bingham video? If you didn't see the email, please. Okay, I'm going to put the the link in the chat right now. Actually, that'd be the way to go. So, I usually show this video. It's fairly long, but I think it's worth it. Um, so, Lord Bingham is a um, he was the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales. Uh, and he has had as illustrious a judicial career as anybody could conceivably have. He's retired and he has dedicated the end of his, um, not the end, but the, this portion of his career now to um, speaking on and theorizing about the rule of law. He's written a book called The Rule of Law and he gives this um, this lecture that I'd like everyone to watch the first 16 minutes of. Um, I was going to try to share a screen, but I know the quality would be horrible. So I think the better move is everybody just, uh, we're going to take a break now. We're going to come back in 22 minutes at noon. And in the interim, I'd like everybody to watch the first 16 minutes of this video and you know take a, take a little break. And then we'll come back and talk a little bit about Lord Bingham's conception of the rule of law coming out of that video. All right, so we'll take a break now and we'll be back in a few. We're back in 22 minutes, back at noon. Okay. Um, hi, everyone. So hopefully you had a chance to, to watch that video. Um, you know, I, uh, I think it's quite useful to hear from someone of that, you know, wisdom and experience what the rule of law can mean. And I hope that in hearing this conception of the rule of law, you started to get 
an answer as to how there can be a broader conception of the rule of law that may allow more room um, for uh, you know courts to not be the the, the very center of all um, rule of law concerns and how there can be some some broader concepts that can be integrated into the rule of law beyond the kind of ideas of formal equality that we see in the dicey approach. Um, ideas like human rights are to be protected. Um, the idea that there will be uh, compliance with uh, international law. And these sorts of things start to, to broaden your conception potentially of the rule of law and offer a counterweight to the you know what Justice Sabella would maybe derisively call the 18th century thinking surrounding the rule of law. Um, yeah, Stephanie. Yes, I agree that there's a component there that um, without further um, investigation does seem to point in a more dicey and formalistic way, certainly. Of all the eight parts that he, he lands, those are that's the one that I think may raise an eyebrow. Um, now, there's nuance here as to what role Lord Bingham would say properly can be um, discretion can play and there's a difference between arbitrary discretion uh, which is unconstrained and discretion which is um, only exercisable within narrow parameters uh, which are going to be consistent with the goal of the grant of the discretion. Now that may sound really abstract and a little bit convoluted, but that is exactly the point of the Ron Corelli case. Uh, we're going to read that for next class and we're going to see how the courts try to reconcile discretion with the rule of law and where discretion is exercisable and where it goes outside of um, of any defensible structure that could be consistent with the rule of law. So I'm so glad you picked up on that. But I think that we're going to somewhat, <coughs> sorry, table that discussion for next class when we're going to have read through the Ron Corelli case. And we're going to grapple with that problem really for a big chunk of the course when we talk about substantive review and the scope of permissible statutory discretion. So that there's certainly a tension there, um, but I think there's going to be some nuance we're going to investigate in this course that may uh, provide a, you know, if not a fully satisfactory answer, uh, a more full understanding of how those concepts can, um, you know, can work together to some extent. I think in his speech, that's what he's referring to, is to a more arbitrary, unfettered, broad discretion. Yes. That's a great point and a great question. 
Any other questions? Um, all right. Well, I certainly would recommend everyone practice that accent because if you can talk like that, I think everything you say gets given twice the uh, the weight that it has otherwise. That's a it's an all time accent that guy has. All right. So there's a few more things I want to touch base on in our remaining uh, 15 minutes today. Uh, one of them is coming back to this question of predictability. One is on this question of arbitrariness and what arbitrariness means. Um, I do want to just pause to note that I, as I often do, uh, distract myself by having a look at, at the news. And in between, during the break, I flipped over to the, the New York Times website. And, um, and that case we were talking about is the lead story on the New York Times uh, website right now. So, you know, you think with everything that's going on in the world, um, the editors there right now see this this case that's posing a challenge to deference to administrative decision makers as, you know, frankly, the single most important thing um, right now, uh, most newsworthy thing right now. So this this has far and wide ramifications, and we're studying this at a, you know, probably a crucial juncture worldwide, considering the role that United States law plays both in shaping global events, but also in, um, you know, being given consideration by uh, by other legal systems. And and certainly I'm sure that there'll be, if um, if the Chevron deference idea indeed falls, uh, as the article was suggesting it is likely to happen, um, we're going to see those repercussions, um, you know, certainly in arguments that are going to be raised that Canadian courts should follow suit the next time the court is inclined to revisit the question of deference in administrative law. Um, any other questions before I move on? All right. Um, so I want to just touch on two concepts that are going to be, um, you know, again, touchstones throughout this course. One is the idea of arbitrariness and the rule of law. And the book does a good job, I think, of positing arbitrariness as really the opposite of the rule of law and talks about how it it lands in both procedural and substantive review and talks about the sort of judicial fear of arbitrariness as driving the oversight that is given to administrative tribunals by the courts. And this is something that I think any thinker from Lord Bingham to Justice Abella to, to Dicey to Scalia to the current members of the U.S. Supreme Court would all agree on is that arbitrariness is the opposite of the rule of law. The question becomes more difficult in defining what is arbitrary. And this gets at that idea that if you viscerally feel that there is one objective truth about what the law means, what any particular law means, then the notion that anyone is going to have to be satisfied with a legally binding determination that is based on something else than that objective truth about the law, especially if, you, if a judge agrees with you that objectively the law means this one thing, uh, is going to seem arbitrary. Thinkers who give more room for deference would say that 
reasonable interpretations and being bound by a reasonable interpretation is not arbitrary, but it can get to a point where asking somebody to be bound by an unreasonable or a patently unreasonable interpretation does stray into arbitrariness. So arbitrariness is a concept that we can agree in principle must be avoided, but where we've strayed into arbitrariness becomes the, the locus of the dispute, if that makes sense. The idea of arbitrariness has been extended into um, procedural protections also. This is nicely mentioned in the book with the idea that the court will find it arbitrary to subject somebody to a, a ruling or a you know a detriment to their rights if it's been done in an unfair way. This is an arbitrary exercise of state power. So arbitrariness probably most commonly is referred to within substantive review of, you know, did you actually interpret this law right? Are you doing something that you have a power to do? Have you gone beyond the scope of your powers and are thereby acting with a arbitrary and unfettered discretion? But it also can extend into the arbitrariness of a, um, you know, an unfair system. And you can think of, you know, extreme examples of, um, you know, sort of Kafka-esque uh, wielding of, of power over people where they have no say whatsoever in um, in defending their case or understanding the case that's being brought against them and how this can descend into what seems to be an arbitrary application of the law. So a concept that I want you to have um, in mind and flagged is something that we're going to be coming back to. And certainly whenever we talk about arbitrariness, underguarding that, under underpinning the very idea that we're concerned with arbitrariness really is a rule of law concern. All right, so the last thing I want to touch on is, um, again, the question of predictability and the law. Um, talked about this a bit coming out of the, the good question going into the break, and I want to just land it again with a, um, a reference to a recent Supreme Court of Canada case and just a, a bit of a um, kind of a conceptual question that I, I've been thinking about a lot and I, I wanted to sort of share with you to um, maybe get your, your minds working a bit on this question of predictability of legal outcomes. And there's a, a, a fundamental tension in the idea of rule of law with the with the, the legal realist conception that there's a lack of predictability and outcomes and i went through that talking about how you know a good lawyer is going to not give you a an answer as to what's going to happen but rather a range of possible outcomes and you know i have um thought about this in my own mind and this this may land for some of you it, it may not but when I think about the difference between sort of quantum mechanics and Newtonian physics, and I don't know much about this. I know the, the pop culture. I've read like the Brian Greene books. That's about as far as I go on this. So if you do have a physics background, I'm sure what I say is going to be, you know, only vaguely accurate. But the fundamental idea, as far as I understand it, is that on the quantum level, um, when you're you're conceptualizing um you know 
how electrons and, and other um, very, very, very small things are going to um, behave, the, the notion of probabilities is not just descriptive, but it's really accurate that they behave in a probabilistic way and you can get um, results that really show that these electrons are interfering with each other in a uh, based on sort of probabilities, not certainties. Whereas Newtonian physics, you know, things have a definite uh, place and a predictability and are bound by by laws and ought to be, you know, predictable going forward. And so, you know, the conception of law is is almost always described in a more Newtonian way. There's an objective truth. There's a there's a certainty to um, to law. Judicial decisions are always written, um, almost always written in a way where the the court says, "Well, this is the answer. We've done the work. This is the answer." Very rarely, if ever, would you see a judge say, "Well, I could have gone either way. The law allows me to do both things, and I eh, choose you for for no good reason." Um, but descriptively, you know, you you're it's probably accurate to say that a lot of cases could go either way, and the judge ends up choosing one because they think that's the more just outcome. But there isn't a determined, you know, certain way that's going to go. So I think it can be helpful to think about law as descriptively being a bit more akin to quantum physics. I can give you probabilities as to how the law is going to uh, be interpreted and applied to your case, but I can't give you certainties. It's only when I go to a judge that the you know, to keep the quantum physics metaphor, the waveform collapses when you measure the uh, the location of an electron, and you start to get a um, a decision that that determines you know where the law is in this particular place. But just because the decision is written as if the law was always determined, it was necessarily going to be this way. You know, descriptively, the probabilistic model looking forward is probably more accurate. It doesn't mean that it, it had to go that way. It means that the judge felt a particular way, maybe decided the case when they were, you know, hungry or, or whatever it is, and that influenced their mental state. And, and it ends up um, that you get this, this ruling, but it didn't necessarily have to be that way. So I say this um, because I think this descriptive truth of the law has been sort of inevitable for a very long time. But I think it's starting to be challenged technologically with the potential for a lot of um, AI decision making, where you know you could take out the human element to a great degree, and you could make very sophisticated decision makers, administrative decision makers, who are going to um, you know use high technology and AI and give much more predictable, consistent uh, decision-making. This would be a big change in the law, though. If the law truly became predictable, the consequences are so vast, I have a hard time really even getting my mind around what that would mean. You know, every dispute would have a right answer, and presumably um, you could plug your facts into a computer and be told what the law is going to say about your, your outcome. And that would not only be you know, a radical tool, if that were to mean the law were to now become necessarily predictable, it would be a change in the fundamental nature of the law. So 
when you're dealing with administrative law and these questions of rule of law and uncertainty, predictability, um, these are ideas that I think resonate uh, much more broadly as you know, all of us try to grapple forward in this changing uh, world and try to deal with how you know, lawyering and the law is going to be radically different, no doubt, in 20, 30 years from it is now, if not much sooner. And so some of these ideas, some of these think, some of this thinking behind rule of law, I think, um, you know, can be very helpful to, uh, to guide us as we try to, you know, kind of stagger forward into this, this brave new world, as it were, that we're going to be, we're going to all be entering into. So that's a little aside, but something that I, I think about a lot and I thought I would share because it might, um, you know, might spur some interest in this, in this topic. Um, the final thing I'm going to talk about is um, just the the question of how the rule of law interacts with stare decisis, and the um, this is getting at the same dynamic that I alluded to when I read from that quote from the, um, the one of the briefs in these United States administrative law cases, but it's the question of how do you allow courts to depart from decisions that they've previously made and stay consistent with the rule of law? Because if you think about it this way, if you're a person and you're supposed to be able to know the law and predict how the law is going to apply to your facts and the supreme court of canada has decided a case and said this is the law and it is applying to facts just like yours um ought you to be able to rely on that going forward or ought you have to factor into your calculus about um you know predicting how the law is going to apply to you the possibility the court's going to reverse itself and issues a, a, a new framework that's completely different from what they've done before. Precisely what's being you know, suggested and sounds like it's likely going to happen in the United States on this question of deference. And there is a interesting back and forth on this in 2020 from the Supreme Court of Canada in a case called Fraser. And this is about Section 15 of the Charter. And we'll get back to some Section 15 issues later in the course when we talk about the Charter and administrative law. But for present purposes, um, all you need to know is that there's a very much a dispute amongst certain members of the Supreme Court as to whether the approach to Section 15 of the Charter has become so unpredictable and so um you know so much within the particular whims and views of a particular judge that it starts to undermine the rule of law so justices roe and brown have been advancing that idea and advancing that idea frankly over and over again justice abella on the other hand um says to brown and roe in in this fraser case Stop undermining the Section 15 framework. You are undermining the rule of law by constantly questioning our decisions, by undermining the, the, the doctrine of stare decisis. So I know it's 1220. I'll just keep you for two more minutes to land this point, then we'll, we'll uh, wrap for today. 
So Justice of Bowless says in uh, the Fraser case, in pretty pointed language, she says, whatever my colleague's definition of rule of law is, it must surely include the assumption that decision maker, sorry, that decisions of the Supreme Court will be respected not only by the public, but by members of the court. And it must surely also include an assurance to those seeking constitutional protections that the ongoing repetition in dissenting reasons of rejected arguments will not require them with each new case to stand ready to defend the exact gains that have been won multiple times in the past. So she's tying rule of law and predictability more broadly into the question of, well, what about the courts? What about stare decisis? How can we depart from stare decisis in a way that's consistent with the rule of law? And she's doing this in the framework of Section 15 jurisprudence, which was taken up by the Supreme Court in the Cap case, the Quebec versus A case, and was um, you know very recently thoroughly argued over. And this is the the approach they've taken. And she says, if you continue to question and undermine it, you are undermining the rule of law. And that, you know, does resonate in the framework we've been talking about with, you know, uh, the suggestion that the courts really are the guardians of the rule of law. But it, it shows some of the, um, the sort of the frailties in the idea that you're going to necessarily get strong predictability and consistency if you leave the, the questions with the courts. Now, maybe better than with the tribunals, but there, it's certainly not going to be, you know, absolute consistency and predictability. And the, you know, the question of stare decisis factors into that. So another sort of way to land the rule of law thinking within your, um, your, your framing of, of the law more broadly. Now, Justice, Justices Brown and Rowe, and this is the last thing that I'll say, Justices Brown and Rowe say, well, hold on, hold on. You're attacking us for not being consistent with the rule of law. But what we are doing is pointing out a Section 15 framework that itself is contrary to the rule of law. So the Justices Brown and Rose say, um, where a legal test lacks defined bounds, courts applying it exercise truly arbitrary powers of review. So they're saying untrammeled discretion in applying a legal test means arbitrary powers of review. And they say, that is the point at which we have arrived at with substantive equality. It's become an unbounded rhetorical vehicle by which the judiciary's policy preferences and personal ideologies are imposed piecemeal upon individual cases. So they've said, we've gotten to the state of arbitrariness with section 15. And they go on to say, the result of all of this is corrosive to the rule of law. She says, our colleague wonders aloud what our definition of the rule of law is we share the views of jurists such as Lord Bingham and Sharp. The concept of the rule of law has interlocking components. One is pertinent here. Canadians should be governed by rules stated and knowable in advance that enable them to guide their conduct. So, you know, I started with the idea that in every case, litigants are going to claim the mantle of the rule of law. And we see how that extends even into discussions in this strange vehicle of competing judicial opinions of the Supreme Court of Canada. The mantle of the rule of law is grabbed by, uh, by, by many people in many circumstances, and this is a, a clear example. And it's an example of how the fact that the rule of law has many components to it 
you know, can lead to different people viewing their position as most fully advancing the rule of law and getting at these questions of predictability and arbitrariness that are really going to be at the center of our discussion of the rule of law going forward. So uh, if there's any questions, I'm happy to, to take them, but otherwise we'll stop there and we'll pick up with some cases to get a little more concrete on Friday. Okay, thanks everybody. I'll put up the um, podcast and I'll put up the uh, uh, recording of this.